Psalm 119 leads us to a time of fellowship around God's word. Listen to this description of what you have in your lap and what we're about to fellowship with or through. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Thou hast ordained thy precepts, that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep thy statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon thy commandments. I shall give thanks to thee with uprightness of heart when I learn thy righteous judgments. I shall keep thy statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Beautiful description of the benefits, the fruit of fellowshipping with God. One of which is, I shall give thanks to thee with uprightness of heart when I learn thy righteous judgments. This morning we're going to gazing upon the righteous judgments of God as it is a passage given to encourage a minister in the work of the ministry. Turn with me, if you would, to Haggai one last time this morning as we wrap up this study, our study of the the prophet. Haggai, in your bulletin, is the outline. Please locate that and use it. And uh, just for your own study, Zechariah will be the next prophet that we go to. We're going to take a couple-week break. Um, from our that from that, so you got a couple weeks to read Zechariah. If I encourage you, start reading it. If not on a, a daily, read it weekly. Just just get familiar with that uh, um, uh, prophecy. Likewise, get a commentary. Go online. There's we have our webpage. page. have quite a few links to free commentaries that you can use and uh, start familiarizing yourself with this incredible book. It is the most quoted Old Testament prophet per size. Um, in the New Testament. So it is most, uh, most frequently uh, uh, quoted by the New uh, Testament um, writers. So it's an incredible book as it describes Christ so well. But today we're, we're closing out on Haggai. And uh, we're looking at verses 20 through 23 is the closing section of this book. And uh, this is God's word. Let me encourage you to stand together with me as we read this word, his word. Hear now the word of our king. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders will go down, every one by the sword of one another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shatael, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord, what a delight, privilege and joy it is for us, your people, to come here now and fellowship with you around your word. What an incredible passage before us. Oh, Lord, I pray as, as the called preacher that you give me the grace to be faithful to this text. Lord, not to mess it up, but, Lord, to accurately and faithfully proclaim it. And that, Lord, we, your people's faith, would not rest upon the wisdom or power of man, but on you, upon your word. 
with your spirit working by and with it. God, bless this time now, we pray, that we might, by faith, catch a glimpse of you, by grace, feed upon you, and be nourished. Lord, bless this meal to our health, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible speaks enough about God's blessing that I would dare say most, if not everyone here, expects God to bless them, or wants God, certainly, but expects God to bless them in their lives. Many passages in Scripture speak of that. Exodus 20, for example, after giving the Ten Commandments, Moses said to the people of God, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I I will come to you and bless you. Wow. Lord, give me that blessing. Malachi 3.10 Bring in the whole tithe into the storehouse so that they may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Or Haggai 2.18 or 2.19, look at the text. We just ended it last time we, we were together. Notice how, how it ends. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Man, we want God to bless us. And because we're earthly and because we're temporal, we anticipate that the blessings that God will give us will likewise be earthly and temporal. So we, we look to God to bless us in our health, and our wealth, our power, prestige, position, standing, ease of days, a long life, and so much more. Yet, brothers and sisters, we need to realize when we deal with God's blessings, we're dealing with a God who has a specific end game in mind. When he sees you and me, he doesn't see you and me as we see ourselves today. He sees you and me in eternity future fellowshipping with him. That's the end game. That's God's end game. And therefore, every blessing serves that purpose. Not the purpose of health, not the purpose of temporal wealth. I mean, think of it. Paul's, many of the, uh, of the, I mean, Paul's, um, that are this, this earthly body is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day as we gaze upon what he's leading us to. Brothers and sisters, the blessing that God has for his people is always related to the end game, and therefore God's purpose and plan in his work in your life relates to the end game. We see it in the book of Haggai. Notice with me verse 6. Remember this? For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will, make, I will shake all the nations, and they will come in the wealth, um, uh, with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. When we looked at that passage, we saw that that was not fulfilled in Zerubbabel's generation nor the succeeding generations. That, was, that, that began to be fulfilled with Jesus Christ hanging on the, the cross and would ultimately be uh, f- uh, fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now what's amazing is that that's the promise that God gave to his people to encourage them in the midst of their labors. In essence, God was saying to them, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people, that's what's repeated again and again, that through your current work, I'm doing an eternal a, um, a purpose. I've got an eternal purpose involved here. 
Our text today, on the heels of verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. God turns his focus now to the leader, to Zerubbabel. Until this point, all the prophecies, all the oracles, the four oracles, are directed to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people. This one is to to, uh, uh, Zerubbabel himself. Who was this man? Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He's the grandson of Jehoiakim. He is in the line of Jesus Christ. And he was the chosen governor by God through Cyrus to lead the people of God back to the promised land and to oversee the building of the temple. That's what this man who that's who this man is, that's what this man is. This man was given the charge 538 BC to lead God's people, the 46,360 um, individuals, uh, maybe 359 now, I'm not uh, counting him. He was called to lead them back to the Palestine, there to rebuild the uh, temple and there to institute the work that God had given him uh, to do. But what do we know happened? What happened? Well, in 537, they got there, and they were immediately confronted by the Samaritans, who, after the Jews said, no, you can't help us, they then turned hostile and attacked them. Then they were plunged into a time of, of, of drought for 17 years, They were also threatened by letters from from Persian, Babylonian governors. Brothers and sisters, it was a hard go. And you know what Zerubbabel did? Nothing. This man failed his job. Of all the men, of all the the people who might feel bad during this time when 520 came, Zerubbabel most likely felt the worst. Because the buck stopped with him. He was responsible, ultimately. He ultimately was accountable. So in 520, when Haggai came preaching the word of God to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the people of God, and therein God, by his spirit, through his word, uh, 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 began this incredible revival. So we've seen all about that. We've studied about it. This incredible revival of God's people wherein they began laboring to build the temple. And three months into it, December 18th, um, still building, yet so much work to do still. Nevertheless, God came in our passage last week and encouraged them. Brothers and sisters, what you're doing is blessed. And why you're blessed is because not anything you've done has nothing to do with what you've done. Look what they've done. Nothing in the three months. Because, the, I mean, again, the boulders, the, the, the foundation zones were so massive. Just to clear it would take months and months and months. What had they done? Nothing. What had they done then? They simply were trusting Christ. They trusted Christ even though nothing changed. And God blessed them. Well, Zerubbabel was one of those people who responded in faith. Who responded with, yes, Lord. And so God comes and he closes out this section with a special message to this particular church leader. Yes, no doubt many times he went to bed feeling guilty. And no doubt many times he went to bed feeling like, what a failure am I? And yet God comes to this man in our passage and closes it out saying, Zerubbabel, on the same day, by the way, of December 18th, the same day as, uh, that he gave last week's passage that we looked at, this is the second oracle, or the, this is part of the fourth oracle. On the same day, he turned to Zerubbabel and he spoke to him. Three words of encouragement. 
You got to see, brothers and sisters, it doesn't say here, be encouraged. Okay, note that. 20 through 23 doesn't say that. In fact, the whole book doesn't say that. But we understand the context and the intent of this message was to lift up and encourage God's people unto service, unto a revival, and unto fidelity as they continued on. So our passage, we, under, we, we take it as words of encouragement to this man. And there are threefold. Now, just by way of footnote, we know Scripture says what is written in former times has been written for our purpose, Romans chapter 15, 4. Because we know that, then we can also take this passage in reference to any leader in the body of Christ. Preachers, elders, deacons, husbands, parents, older siblings, those engaging in evangelism, those participating in discipleship. Brothers and sisters, read this today as spoken to you because of Romans 15, 4 and many other such uh, verses. Because this is indeed God's word of encouragement given to church leaders or, or, or ministers in his kingdom, servants of Christ who are at the risk of being discouraged because nothing's changed. Remember 520, nothing's changed. Notice the first word. Our work as servants of Christ is eternal. Notice 2021. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of this month saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, he just gave this promise in 2.6. Look back in the text. 2.6. Exact same phrase. And we, there we saw that this passage ultimately is in reference to God shaking the world. When Christ died on the cross, there was a massive earthquake as God from the heavens reached down and ripped the temple curtain. That, at that moment, God shook the heavens and the earth. So we know ultimately this is in reference to Jesus Christ. But ultimately we know this was in reference not just to his first coming, but also to the end times. If you read 6 and following, how God would shake the heavens and the earth, where God would establish his kingdom and then destroy this world and reestablish this world as a new heavens and a new earth. And brothers and sisters, the point that God now is giving Haggai to as he repeats this is, is this, through your labors... I'm going to shake the world. That's the message to this man. Your work is going to go beyond this world. Through your labors, I'm going to shake the world. Now, commentators agree with that statement. But many of which say simply because Zerubbabel is great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. Because he's in the line of Christ, through Zerubbabel, God would shake the world. Through Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we know this is speaking of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to suggest to you it's not just his lineage. I'm going to suggest to you God's going to shake the world through this man's labor, through the, the, these people's labor that was last time, but through this man's labor because what he was doing was the foundation of the church. Listen to Ephesians 2 19 through 20. This is an important passage anytime we look at the prophets. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul said, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built, the church has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The prophetic message is the foundation of the messianic reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Now, in what way is the prophetic message the foundation? Think with me on this one, please. How is the prophets, how are the prophets' words the foundation 
of the church, of the kingdom of God, the messianic reign and rule. You say, well, because it's truth. Truth is the foundation. Think a little harder. Right now, did you know the PCUSA church? Years ago, we had a guy transferred to the denomination that I was in from the USA denomination. He was a, a believer and couldn't handle it anymore. So he transferred to our denomination, and he shared with us on his examination, the USA, they still subscribe to the exact same confession we do. What they profess to be true is exactly what you and I profess to be true. But they don't believe it. It's in a nice little book, uh, you know, a showcase that they look at, and they go, yep, that's our history. We still profess this. This is part of our Constitution still. So it's not truth. They've got truth. What is the foundation upon which the church is built? It's truth applied. It's truth lived out. And if there's any time in redemptive history, Old Testament redemptive history, where God's people were living out truth, it's here. Do you realize um, Zerubbabel's grandfather had the word of God preached to him? He didn't listen to it. His great-grandfather had the word of God preached to him. He really didn't listen to it. In fact, he persecuted Jeremiah. How many of the prophets were not executed and killed by the very people who should have responded to it? Yet we come to this point in redemptive history with this man and these people, but this man, specifically this king, okay, this man who part of the, the lineage of David, he's not literally uh, uh, formally a king, but this man, this leader, this governor, responds to the preached word of God. And God's saying, Zerubbabel, through that, I'm going to shake the world. Through that, I'm laying the foundation of my messianic reign and rule through Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Notice what he says. Once again, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth implication through you. Do you understand what God is doing here? He's looking at Zerubbabel and his responsiveness to the word of God. And he says, man, I'm, I'm looking through it at Jesus Christ. And if you have any doubts about that, listen to, well, you know, turn there or listen to Hebrews 12, 26. One fun thing about preaching the Old Testament prophets is when you get to a text that the New Testament quotes. And our text is quoted. Listen to Hebrews 12. And his voice shook the earth then, speaking of the um, Mount Sinai. God's voice shook the earth then, but now has promised... And this is the quotation from our text, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Direct quotation of Haggai chapter 2, verse 21. Interesting. Let me keep on reading. And this expression, yet once more I will shake the earth and the heavens, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So God said, in Hebrews, quoting Haggai, God's going to shake this world such that whatever cannot be remain, whatever will be burned up will be burned up, and whatever remains is going to last. That's what God's after. What's the only thing that's going to remain? The text goes on, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Do you understand? God is telling Zerubbabel, through you, I'm doing this. Now, his was the foundational ministry. Okay? Ultimately, this is a reference to Jesus Christ, his first coming, his second coming. Ultimately, his second coming when the kingdom of Christ comes in its fullness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? 
But brothers and sisters, get this. It began with the work of this man. Now listen very carefully here. Did Zerubbabel know how his work was going to do that? No. Do we know how his work did that? No. But what we do know, and this is what you and I have to take away from this, what we do know is this. While we may not know how God's going to use our work, we know if our work is done in the name of Jesus Christ, it will be used by God to shake the world. Do you get that? I may not know how God's going to use me, but I know that he does. And that's the work that you're doing in the name of Jesus Christ. Though the world may look at it and call us fools, your family might look at it and call you fools. You might look at it and say, what have I done? You may feel just like, you may, you may come to that point, I think where Zerubbabel had to have been many times in his ministration um, of God's people during this time, where he spoke those inspired words of complaint. You know, the Bible tells us how to complain. You know that, right? If you ever find yourself struggling with, man, I just feel angry at God and I want to say something to him. But I should, oh, this is horrible. I shouldn't do that. I'm a, a Christian. Brothers and sisters, God's given us inspired words to govern your complaints against him. He wants you to complain. He wants you to be real. And one such passage of complaint is Isaiah 49. How many times does Zerubbabel say, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing and vanity. You ever feel like that, brothers and sisters, in your walk with God? In the work God's given you, your marriage, parenting, your work, toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing and vanity. That's how Zerubbabel, no doubt, had to have felt. But listen to the message God gave Zerubbabel in Isaiah 49, which is what I'm quoting from. Those inspired words of complaint. I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. In other words, yet what I'm doing is for God. And God's going to use it according to his will. I don't know how. From my perspective, it looks like I've done absolutely nothing. God, I'm, I'm building, I'm building um, a structure. Or I'm making bricks without straw. That's what my life has become. Bricks without straw. They just melt. But God looks at that work done in the name of Jesus Christ. And he has a purpose for that work. Just like he did with Zerubbabel. Through you, I'm going to shake the world. Brothers and sisters, God does not shake the world through one man. But through the corporate, insignificant labors of millions. Of men, women, and children who serve the Lord. The word of encouragement to this man, what was it? It was first and foremost, Zerubbabel, your work in the Lord is not in vain. It's eternal. I'm an, I, through you, I'm shaking this world. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 would be a summary. I would give you verse 21. As Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So don't you ever get to the point in your life where you listen to your flesh, listen to the world telling you 
You're a failure and you're a loser, and what you've done is worthless. Brothers and sisters, nothing done in the name of Jesus Christ is ever worthless. God's going to use it. But you and I do not have the privy of seeing how. Neither did Zerubbabel. What Zerubbabel was doing was the foundation upon which the church would be built. Hebrews 12 says that. The king would be established. And ultimately, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 is, is focusing on the second coming of Jesus Christ when God's kingdom comes in his glory. Zerubbabel had no clue, but that's what he was participating in. Incredible. A worker of the Lord, tired, weary, ready to give up. Guess what? The world may not appreciate it. You may not see it, but God's using it. Trust him. Believe him. Secondly, would you notice, earthly power and glory is empty and temporal. So the second message of a word of encouragement he gives this man, verse 22. And I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots of, and, the, and the riders and the horses and the riders will go down, every one by the sword of one another. Brothers and sisters, this passage has... Um, overtones of, of three or four different Old Testament passages. It's very clear. It's funny. Haggai quotes so much of, of other prophets. We'll see Zechariah does the same thing. Zechariah quotes extensively from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and some of the earlier prophets. It's incredible. Haggai does the same thing. And the, the most prominent one that sticks out to us, I'm not going to look at them all with you. We don't have time, is Exodus 15. The time when God single-handedly delivered his people from Egypt. Listen to Exodus 15.1. The Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider has hurled into the sea. That is very close to our text. Clearly, God is saying, in Zerubbabel, all the things that are facing you right now, all these huge mountains of conflict and, and opposition... I'm going to hurl them into the sea, just like I did Pharaoh's army. Let me back up give a little bit of history here. As you may or may not know, when Exodus 15 was written or when the Exodus occurred, Egypt was in its heyday. It's known as the, the, uh, um, the New Kingdom Era. Egypt has different eras, and one of their high points was the New Kingdom Era, and they were the most powerful nation in the world they had influence over vast amounts of geography beyond their borders. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They were, they were unthwartable. They were incredible. And you know what God did? God single-handedly went to Egypt and did battle with the Egyptian gods. Now, there's no, there's no such thing as other gods, but he demonstrated to the Egyptians their gods are nothing. Listen to Exodus 12, 12. I will go with the land of Egypt on that night, strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Each of the curses that God gave to the ten that God gave to Egypt were against specific deities, the prime deities of Egypt. You know that, right? Each of those curses. Well, the greatest deity of Egypt was the Pharaoh. So the last thing that God does was Egypt is he leads his people uh, free. He lets his people go. Pharaoh then comes in close up pursuit. Why? To, God is, is going to demonstrate his sovereignty over their chief uh, God, the, the head of the Egyptian pantheon. 
Okay, you know the story. Pharaoh goes out. God's people are stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. They're frightened. God holds them off with the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, and parts the Red Sea. God's people walk on dry ground. Uh, he then lets, God then lets the, uh, um, Pharaoh's army go. They go into the, the sea, and the sea then closes in upon them, and the horse and rider are thrown into the sea, and they die. And God vanquishes, single-handedly vanquishes the most powerful kingdom the world had ever seen. After the fall. Incredible. What's God telling Zerubbabel here? Well, what's, been, what's Zerubbabel been up against the last couple months? The last couple years? Well, first he's been up against the Samaritans who have attacked him and attacked him and attacked him. Nehemiah describes the same, amount of, uh, same group of, of people so threatening that God's people, as I've said before, have to rebuild the city walls with a sword in one hand, lest they be killed. That's the conflict they're up against. And then you have Tatanai, who is a Persian slash Babylonian slash Persian governor, local, who's, who's, who has taken Zerubbabel's name, put it in a letter and saying, this man is defying you, Darius. So now, now Zerubbabel thinks, great, it's a matter of months or maybe less than a year that the Persians are going to come back in force and they're going to kill us and kill me, string me up. That's what he's against. And he's up against this 17-year drought and famine and, and difficulty. No doubt he had many attackers and accusers amongst God's people. Just like Moses, where have you led us? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But you can imagine. All we know is this. Zerubbabel's had a rough go of it. He has a lot against him. A lot. And God says this. I have destroyed single-handedly the most powerful nation in the world. Zerubbabel, I'll take care of you. Second, in word of encouragement, everything that you're facing right now will be gone. I've taken care of it. You, you are, your work is eternal, and I can single-handedly address the, the obstacles that are in your way right now. Isaiah 40, the nations are like a drop from the bucket regardless of a speck of dust on the scales. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart are like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Jeremiah 10.10, the nations cannot endure God's indignation. And thus, that's exactly what the message is to, uh, to, to Haggai here in verse 22. Haggai, I control the nations. The Samaritans, the Persians, the, the famine, the the drought. I control it all. What a word of encouragement to this man. James uh, Joyce, Baldwin, Joyce Baldwin wrote these words. The fact that Judah is small and defenseless makes no difference when God says, I will overthrow. He will act and Judah will not need to fight. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silence. Wow. Brothers and sisters, the second word of encouragement to this man is an incredible word that we all need uh, to hear. If God is on your side, you need not fear obstacles or opposition. I don't have a job. That's an obstacle. Brothers and sisters, God can take care of that. I've got Ill, Ill, Ill health. That's an obstacle. Brothers and sisters, God can take care of that. Now, don't hear... From what I've just said, and I could go on and on with those statements. 
That means that God's going to make everything okay on this side of the grave. When James Boyce uh, was diagnosed with the liver cancer, he had, what, a month to live? And he only had about a month to live. His last sermon, he shared the, the passage that, that God indeed will heal his people. And his statement is, I'm looking forward to that healing either on this side of the grave or on the next. Brothers and sisters, God can take care of the, the obstacles in your life. It may be through our death or graduation, but boy, he can take care of them. What an incredible word of encouragement. Man, not only is the work that we're doing, which seems so silly, so insignificant, so meaningless, important to God, priesthood of the believer, but secondly, God's going to take care of those, of all those forces that you see, God will take care of them. He will. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. And then lastly, notice the last thing that God tells this man. He was, as we are, of an estimable value to God. Notice with me verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, the key to this little verse is signet ring. Yet to understand that signet ring, let me give you a little bit of the history. Okay, there were the last five kings of Judah who sat on the Judean throne before it went into exile, 586. The last five kings, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, um, who am I missing here? Zedekiah, the last four, I said five. The last four were all awful kings, horrible kings. Jehoahaz, I mean, you guys know who Ahaz is, this horrible, 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 horrible king. Jehoahaz is named after Ahaz. And he, he crammed into two years, or however long his regency was, two to three years, long regency, all the abuses of Ahaz. He was a horrible, horrible, wicked man. His son, Jehoiakim, with an M. Jehoiakim was the worst. Jehoiakim served ten years on the throne of Judah, um, spending the entire time rebuilding his palace. He reinstituted corvée labor, which is basically slavery. He said, God's people did not want to be enslaved. They were enslaved. Do not enslave us. So when Solomon um, instituted slave labor, it was massively controversial. This man re- reinstituted it drafted God's people and forced them to labor and work on his palace, raised taxes to make his palace beautiful. All the while, Jeremiah is saying, give up, give up. God's will is for you to give up and, and uh, um, um, give yourself into the Babylonians. But Jehoiakim knew better, and he said, absolutely not. Let's throw, let, we'll throw Jeremiah into a, a pit multiple times, and we'll defy the uh, Babylonians. And he did. Well, that brought on, if you know the history of Nebuchadnezzar, one more time, 597, comes swooping into Judah to deal with Jehoiakim, who conveniently died three months before Nebuchadnezzar got there, leaving his son, Jehoiakim, some say Chin, because it's C-H-I-N, Jehoiakim on the throne. Well, Jehoiakim served for three months, Nebuchadnezzar arrives, and um, he knows he's a king, so he treats him well. But he brings he and the queen mother into exile. 597. With all the choice kids. Ezekiel would be in that one. 
right? Brings them back in, I mean, exile. And when that happened, this is what Jeremiah wrote. Listen to the word of God. As I live, declares the Lord, even though uh, uh, Coniah, which is another name for Jehoiakim, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, and he was, yet I will pull, I will pull you off, and I shall, I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, and even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. You know what God said to uh, through Jeremiah about Jehoiakim. Now he's not talking about him personally as a child of God. He's talking about as the, as, as the king, as the Davidic king. God says, I'm taking you off my hand and I'm throwing you out. In other words, I'm cursing you, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, a curse at that moment rested on the house of David. Cast him off. And there you'll die in a foreign land. Seventy-seven years later, Jehoiakim's grandson, Zerubbabel, is responding to the word of God. And God comes to him in our text and says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shaltel, my servant, and I will make you a signet ring. Do you understand what happened? God reversed the curse. Verse 19 ends with, I will bless you. Verse 23 is is ending with the same exact content. I am going to bless you like you wouldn't believe. You're my signet ring. Wow, you're talking about encouragement. Now, what is a signet ring? Okay, a signet ring was a stone that when a man became a king, they took a stone and they carved into it a special symbol And then they set that signet stone into a ring of gold or silver, which was worn on the finger or, and most commonly, worn on a chain around the the king's neck close to his heart. Now, why? Because the signet ring was the ring that was used. Anytime, for example, in Persia, the primary documents of law were written on clay tablets. And by the end of the law, they, they would take the king's ring and imprint it in the clay tablet. And then it would dry. And then you'd know that is the authority of the king. They also used it on scrolls. When they'd seal the scroll, put wax on it, they put this signet ring in it. And that would mark this is from the king. It was the most, next to the king, the most powerful Um, item in the nation and therefore the most valuable it was understood by everyone next to the king the most valuable item having the most power is that ring and most kings didn't wear it every day but they would never leave it because if they left and got stolen they could have their entire kingdom turned upside down by some aspiring general so they never left it They, they, they slept with it they, they, never, they never parted. They wore it around their neck, close to their heart. And so it became a metaphor. To be someone's signet ring was a metaphor of two things. One, ability. I'm going to use you. And secondly, honor or value. You are the most precious thing in the world to me. I'm going to use you. Because I value you. And God told this man, 
Lastly, not only is your work eternal, not only are the things that you fear and dread in this world nothing to me, but thirdly, you are the most important person in the world to me. Now, brothers and sisters, that was the message God gave to this Zerubbabel. And that is the message that God gives to each and every one of us. In fact, if you doubt it, notice the ending of 23. It has three terms of, of endearment. Interesting. Notice the one, I will take you. The word is used here in Exodus 6, Joshua 24, 3, 2 uh, Samuel 7, of a, of a special selection. Zerubbabel just wasn't any ruler. He was, the, he, he was of special significance to God. So the, the language here is packed with, with value, with, with devotion, with specialness. Notice the next word, my servant. This used of David. Ezekiel 34, 23, 37, 24, Isaiah 43, 55. To be, you, to be God's servant was to be the apple of his eye. And finally, the promise here is, I have chosen you, speaks not of a blind uh, selection, but in the Hebrew, a selection which comes on account of love. You are most beloved. Christian, that's, that's the exact same thing we have. Boyce wrote of this passage, the signet was a precious object, so it was kept on the ruler's finger on a cord around his neck. It was guarded with his person. God was telling Zerubbabel that he was going to be like that to God. God was going to place the governor on his finger to hang him around his neck so that though the nations and even heaven and earth should be shaken, Zerubbabel would remain safe. He would be kept secure until God had done all the things spoken about in this prophecy. Now, ultimately, this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But as we're in Christ, this ultimately, therefore, by application, applies to every one of us. Family of God, as a servant of the Lord, what are you to God today? What are you? Are you just a vassal? Are you just a subject that he, that he can easily kill and, and sacrifice? Scripture tells us, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into, his, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. You're not a servant. You're a son. You're a daughter. Do you understand your value to God? God looks upon you this day and says, you are most precious. Now, you may in your heart think, I don't feel precious. Life's been difficult. Life's been hard. Well, brothers and sisters, just wait till you, till you put your pinky toe onto the shores of eternity future. And see if that doesn't change your opinion. Can you by faith see that and behold that? Can you by faith grasp this and, and respond to this and live by faith upon this glorious truth? You in Christ are significant. I read a great quote from Charnock. I've been reading a book by Stephen Charnock. And Charnock made this comment. Before God could ever disown you, he would have to devalue the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I read that and highlighted it in different colors and starred it and put pen and pencil under it. I mean, name it. Get this. Sometimes I feel like, man, you know what? God just, I've just done so much wrong. God's going to disown me. Do you understand before God could disown you, he has to devalue the work that his son did on the cross? Because that cross work makes you spotless before God. And because of, of, of God's value of you, get this, before the world began, he sent his son 
So he'll never devalue you. You are the most precious thing to God. That's why he sent his son. That's what the message is to to Zerubbabel. Man, keep on going, brother. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weak. Trust your God because all the things that you might say, man, this and this and this creates this story to me that I must not be very important uh, to God. You know what? You're looking at the world through man's eyes. Man sees not as God sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. That's all you could ever do as a Christian. God sees eternity. And his end game is you with him in glory forever. Brothers and sisters, what incredible close of Haggai. As he comes to this people on this last day, December 18th, and gives this message both to the people and now finally to Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel. Understand this, all ministers and servants of the Lord, which is everyone in this room, one, your work is lasting. It's going to transcend this grave, this world. Don't miss it. Secondly, all the things of this world combined together are nothing to to God. Don't be intimidated. Don't be fearful. Don't, Don't let any of the mountains that are currently before every one of us be something that causes you to, to quake in your relationship with God. Trust the Lord. Thirdly, why? Because you are of utmost value to the Lord. He's placed you on a gold chain around his neck and wears you close to his heart. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is this day to come before you and to fellowship around this incredible prophecy. These closing words that, God, are just such a gem to us, your people. Father, I know this body is filled with weary servants. I'm one of them. I know, Lord, this body is filled with men and women who in many ways are at their end. Lord, I'm one of them. But Lord, we know better. For we know your word and the incredible commentary as it describes what you are, what we are, and what is ours in you. Father, I pray you'd give us the grace to respond to this message with Zerubbabel. Lord, he took this little message and you used it for him to be faithful and consistent for the next four years to rebuild the temple that took Solomon seven and a half years to do. God, I pray that you would indeed mobilize us and empower us, not because of any self-help or or, uh, vain promises of man, but because of the identity of what we are before you this moment. We are your children, and what we do matters to you for eternity. And therefore, what the world is before you and us is as nothing. God, give us the grace to be consoled by this very truth. And Lord, as we pray this, we pray this anticipating the Lord's Supper, a meal which anticipates the second coming of Christ and the wedding feast of the Lamb, where you shall come up to us and verbally to the world express to us your, uh, uh, the value, our value to you. Praise, glory, and honor. God, we, we take this meal in anticipation of that glorious day. And therefore, Lord, I pray, by this, lift up 
our weak, weary, and disbelieving hearts and strengthen us unto your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.